This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast, episode 72. This week, I'm going to be talking to Nicholas Eric all about how to sell more books in 2021. But first to last week's question, which was a request for a recommendation of a craft, business or marketing book. We had lots of recommendations, much to my bank account's disappointment. Tango says A Writer's Guide to Persistence by Jordan Rosenfeld. Scott says Two Recommendations from Me, Writing Into the Dark by Dean Wesley Smith and Verbalized by Damon Swade. I've, I've read both of those and I also really enjoyed them. Jackson says Joy at Work by Marie Kondo. Amy says My Craft Book Recommendations are Wired for Story and Story Genius by Lisa Cron and Verbalize. Verbalize is getting a lot of popular requests there. I mean, recommendations. Uh, I have both wide for story and story genius on my shelf I just haven't got to them however I have taken a course by Lisa Cron which was about wide for story and thought it was fantastic Jasmine says steering the craft by Ursula Leguerin whatever I don't know how to say her name obviously that's awkwardly embarrassing Ian says busy writers guides by Marcy Kennedy CC says uh, I'll throw out self-editing uh, for fiction authors by King and Brown I've also read that thought it was fantastic and any of the thesauri by Puglisi and Ackerman again I have read all of the thesauri and absolutely loved them Edwin says Stein on writing by Sol Stein now hmm I I don't think I have this one and um it is one that I have been recommended before so I guess that one is the one that's going in my writing my Amazon or uh, Waterstones basket. Okay, Victoria says, uh, well, your books, of course, thank you very much. Um, and then she continues to say, most of Joanna Penn's books, Write, Publish, Repeat, and On Writing by Stephen King. I'm excited, no, sorry, uh, I'm starting to read Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic. I have read Big Magic. I've read, I think, pretty much all of Joanna's uh, nonfiction books. I've read On Writing. Um, I haven't read Write, Publish, Re uh, Repeat, though. But um, Elizabeth Gilbert's, Gilbert's Big Magic is fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Uh, on writing, I have mixed feelings about. I actually enjoyed the memoir section more than the writing tips. I felt the writing tips were quite basic. Um, but Joanna's books, I adore. I'm a huge Joanna fangirl, so... Yeah. And then, oh, sorry, one more. Sarah says, uh, Romance Your Brand by Zoe York. So thank you for all of those recommendations. I hope I haven't broken anybody's uh, bank account with those, but I think sometimes it's nice to share, you know, books that have had an impact and, uh, hey, we are all writers. We are, um, well, I certainly hope that we are all readers as well. This week's question is, what marketing tactic would you like to be better at? Recommendation of the week. This week actually comes from Scott, who recommended that I read um, Alex E. Harrow's award-winning, I think it was the Hugo Award that it won, award-winning short story, which is called a, oh, what is it called? It's called A Witch's Guide to Escape, a practical compendium of portal fantasies. And it is fantastic. It's only about 5,000 words and it is exquisite. It's so exquisite that um, I am going to go back and read it and um, analyse it and take out some quotes to look at how Alex has used different literary techniques to create the effects that um, they've created. I just thought it was stunning. Uh, the characterization, the descriptions, just everything. How Alex created that like deeply intricate and detailed world in just 5,000 words. I, I don't know, but I have definitely basically gone out and brought every single book that Alex has written <laughs> after having read that because I thought it was so uh, unbelievably gorgeous. So yes, I will leave a link to that in the show notes. 
Lots to update you on uh, in personal news this week. So I am going to be doing a live Q&A with Mark Lefebvre on wide marketing to help celebrate his the launch of his new book, Wide for the Win, which I think he co-authored with Erin Wright, who founded the Wide for the Win Facebook group. If you are a wide author or you are in KU but you're thinking about going wide, cat, get off of that, um, or you are thinking about... Um, leaving KU, you would just like to sell more books, then this is the Q&A for you. This is the book for you. Uh, I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy of this book. The session, the live Q&A will be on the 17th of March at 8pm UK time, 1pm Pacific time, 4pm Eastern time and 7am Australia, Sydney time. And uh, you do have to be a member of my Facebook group. So I will leave a link to both the Facebook group and the event um, in the show notes. Next up then, uh, I as this goes live, if you are listening to this in real time on the day it airs, then uh, this evening will be my patron-only Poison and Prose session on the 10th of February. Uh two more things to announce then. I did a uh, episode with the Dialogue Doctor on voice, narrator voice, character voice, sharpening your dialogue and much more. In that session on his podcast, uh, you can also watch it on YouTube, I actually shared a thousand words of a scene that is from The Scent of Death, a book that I am writing and we uh um Jeff edits it and goes through things that he likes and things that I can sharpen and improve so if you would like to have a nosy at something uh, I have written and also listen into the conversation about character and narrator and and voice it is deeply fascinating I've already rewatched it once and um I am definitely going to go back and rewatch it again just because it was um so fascinating Jeff has some unbelievable insights into character characterization and voice and yeah big fangirl over here so I highly recommend you watch that I will leave a link in the show notes last but by no means least the 22nd until the 26th of February Pro Writing Aid is doing a fantasy writers week and boy do they have some amazing authors including the one I'm most looking forward to speaking TJ Klune Um, and they are basically doing a week-long series of events all geared towards fancy writers and world builders it looks to be amazing so I am going to leave a link to that in the show notes I'm going to attend myself so um, yeah if you are a fantasy writer uh, then I will leave my affiliate link in the show notes in, in, I guess, <laughs> I've just given you a whole load of things, but uh, in actual personal news, I have spent this week uh, mostly uh, recording th- uh, the audiobook. So I have decided to start with 13 Steps to Evil uh, because it's one of the shorter ones. And I just felt like if I was going to do this and do the narration and the editing and all of this stuff, then rather than overwhelm myself with a very long uh, book, The Anatomy of Prose, first I would do one of the shorter ones uh, just to build my confidence. So yes, uh, that is well underway now and um, I hope within about six weeks I'll have done it all. I don't know why I continue to forget how taxing narrating is I mean I have done it professionally and I've done I started recording this book once before and honestly like every single time I forget how taxing doing this is I can only really record one chapter at a time and yeah I mean I am feeling the strain in my voice um so yeah I think I just need to maybe like look for some more vocal exercises before I do this. I've forgotten most of the things that I used to do. I've also been working on uh, side characters, so the next non-fiction book. I haven't really spoken about side characters very much, um, well, as much as I would normally anyway. Um, I thought it was going to be like a 40,000 word book, much in the same size as the Villains and Heroes book. It isn't. <laughs> I'm so naive. I really genuinely thought it was going to be Um, And I think it's actually going to be much closer to the anatomy of prose in size, which is great in one way because it means, you know, I'm really getting into the nitty gritty. Uh, It's also just mildly frustrating because I it means I'm going to have to push my writing deadline out. Um, 
but hopefully it means that you guys will get an even better book. Um, I have also been writing a short story. I am trying to collate uh, a few short stories in my fantasy world, uh, which will then serve as a reader magnet. So yeah, I've done I've done a fair few things this week. Um, although t- in typical Sasha fashion, I still don't feel like I've done enough. Um, but yes, anyway, I will stop banging on about that. Righto, uh, Rebel of the Week. The Rebel of the Week this week is Rebecca Purcell. Rebecca says, so when I was 15, we used to drink and stand outside the corner shop asking for an adult to buy us booze. Lambrini, this particular time. I definitely remember Lambrini. There was one particular policeman in our area who constantly targeted females and harassed anyone he saw. Unfortunately, the police caught us. Being the mouthy shit I was, I told this officer to go fuck himself. This officer was known, as I've said, to be a bully and his attitude really annoyed me. I remember him telling me that I was a piece of shit, so I told him to piss off. I got taken home in the police car. He was expecting me to get told off, but my granddad answered the door. The officer explained what had happened, saying I needed to be taught a lesson. My granddad just called me naughty and started bitching to the police about how the youths smashing uh, how the youths were smashing up the supermarket we lived by. Uh, when my mum came home, though, uh, and saw the office officers, I definitely did get a telling off. I've never disrespected an officer prior to that or ever again, but he was a prick so no regrets I um yeah I mean it's it's funny isn't it because you know I I do respect law enforcement uh you know they are there to keep us safe um or they're meant to keep everybody safe I know they don't keep everybody safe but um broadly speaking that is the point of law and and an order but that doesn't mean that people aren't assholes. <laughs> there are assholes at every level of um, this world. There are assholes in government, assholes in monarchies, there are assholes, um, you know, next door, there are assholes in shops. They're, you know, and it, it makes it difficult to respect law, I suppose, when people are uh, genuinely assholes. And, you know, sometimes people got to be told you're being a dick. So yeah, loved, loved that rebellion. One new patron this week. Welcome and thank you to Ryan Simmons. A huge thank you to everybody who um, has been a patron from the start, patron, um, you know, uh, new patrons, old patrons, patrons in the middle, everybody, every patron. I love you guys. Um, I really genuinely appreciate the support. And um, yeah, so hopefully you'll enjoy the Poison and Prose, uh, which will be this evening as this airs. I'd like to join the Poison and Prose special uh, Patreon only session uh, and get access, early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Sponsor of the week this week is Pro Writing Aid. I am a huge Pro Writing Aid fan. Their editing software is amazing. And as I say, every time they are sponsor, I use their software personally. I use it um, as like my last line of defense before I send it to uh, my editor. So as like a grammar checker style editor, I guess they're like a, a form of copy editor in a way. But Pro Writing Aid is about more than just finding grammar mistakes. It helps you learn good writing techniques. It has over 20 different writing reports that make suggestions and then offered offer detailed explanations. They also have videos and quizzes to help you understand the reasonings, reasoning behind the suggestions. So you're learning not just for that one manuscript, but to help improve your writing going forward as well. While writing can be grammatically perfect, it can still feel awkward and clumsy. Pro Writing Aid searches out elements like repetitiveness, vague word- wording, sentence length variation, overdependence on adverbs, passive voice, overcomplicated sentence constructions, and so much more. Of course, Pro Writing Aid will never replace a human editor. Rather, it helps you to edit, uh, self-edit to a deeper level so that when you do send it off to an editor, your editor is able to focus on the meat of your writing and not spend their time fixing basic mix- mistakes. I adore them. I adore that they're putting out this fantasy week as well. So yeah, if you guys haven't checked them out, you really ought to. And um, you can use my discount code to get 25% off, which is rebel25. And I will leave links in the show notes. 
months. Okie dokie, let's get on with the interview. This is Nicholas Eric. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by Nick Eric. Nick is a science fiction and fantasy novelist who has written over 20 books. For fellow indie authors, he writes comprehensive guides on how to sell more books, uh, build your fan base and be more productive. Hello, Nick. Hi, Sasha. Thank you for having me. Today. No, thank you very much for joining me. I was actually sent one of your books as a gift uh, by one of my friends because they were so utterly amazed. Um, they brought a copy for me and a couple of other friends um, because they thought your book was absolutely fantastic and super comprehensive. So, yeah, I'm really excited to have you um, here today and uh, to talk about your book and to uh, dive into some marketing tactics. So thank you for joining me. Awesome. Um, so before we get into, I guess, the core marketing questions, would you like to tell everybody a little bit about your own writing journey and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I started back in 2012 toward the end. So it's been a bit over eight years and basically just been refining the process and working on the writing and the marketing ever since. So it's definitely a long game and the industry has changed over that time. I'd say what hasn't changed is delivering books to readers that they're going to enjoy and want to share with other people, want to buy the next one. And marketing is really about facilitating that connection where you're saying, hey, this book is for you if you like urban fantasy, which is what I write, or thrillers or epic fantasy, whatever the case may be. So it has been a learning process over those years and have gradually started doing more marketing stuff for other authors and running ads and things like that for authors and have learned a lot about the ad platforms gathered a lot of data and we'll see where it goes in 2021. Yes, that is the ultimate question, isn't it? What the bloody hell is going to happen in 2021? Um, okay, so I mentioned uh, that we're here to talk about uh, your book, and I know you've got a couple for indie authors, but specifically the ultimate guide to book marketing. So in the book, you talk about the Pareto principle, which, or also known as like the 80-20 rule, which I'm, I'm, I'm guessing most people will have heard of. But for anybody who hasn't heard of uh, the Pareto principle, could you explain what it is? But more specifically, how you're relating it to the indie author business and to writers? Sure. It's a principle that basically states 20% of your actions are going to produce 80% of the results. And the math is actually fairly robust, but it's not necessarily the math that matters. It's just the idea that there are a few things in your author business and in life that are going to be very, very important for producing those high leverage outcomes. And you want to make sure that you're spending your time on those rather than all the other things you can do because there are a lot of distractions. There's a lot of noise out there and it's easy to be doing a lot of work, but not seeing much in the way of results over time. If you're investing that into an area where it's not effective. So for example, in the indie world, something like your cover is going to be one of the key things in that 20%. You need that to draw in the right readers. So it needs to signal the genre. It needs to be eye-catching, professional to stand out in the store. Another one is your blurb. Writing is a words-based medium. So that means that people are going to be swayed and sold or not sold as the case may be on your book based on what you're writing there. And if you can focus on these areas rather than all the noise out there, then you're going to see more results if you're consistently investing in those skills and areas. So are there any things like over your over the last eight years that you have personally cut out? Because I know um, the last year for me in particular has been really, um, what's the word, like 
revelational in terms that's whatever the word is there like in terms of what I was doing and what what necessarily I should be doing and because um, I had to do a lot of homeschooling we had our kid at home um, I naturally cut out a lot of the crap that I was doing um, and I've dropped like social media platforms so like I've just recently more or less stopped using Twitter because it's just not reaping any benefits for me um, and other things but I wondered if you had any things that you'd um, like cut out because you felt they weren't um, helping you on the 20 like the 80-20. I would say I've always been pretty streamlined so it's something that I've adopted from the beginning. I think there are ways to basically streamline your time without cutting if you've already kind of cut to where you want something I've never really done is social media I just haven't found it to be really all that useful in terms of what my strengths are and if it's something that you really enjoy with Facebook groups or interacting with readers there Instagram I think there are ways to build and connect with readers I would say that most authors do that poorly where they have five different accounts that are relatively inactive Mm -hmm. and that's one area for other authors certainly that you can refine and when it comes to things that maybe aren't necessarily being cut but refined one example from my own business is tracking where there are gradations to how much you track and for what I do managing ads for other people as well as myself There are also ways to pull in that data somewhat automatically and cut it different ways. So I've been working on that the past two, three months, hired some people to do that. So there are different applications of that where that is definitely part of the core 20%, having accurate numbers, having knowledge of which ads are working and which ones aren't, at least to the best of our abilities, since you can't exactly ever know that and so sometimes it's just about investing more time into the key 20 percent rather than cutting i think that is so key and so crucial like for so many reasons i know like i am i am admittedly not a numbers person but i absolutely appreciate the value of what numbers and figures and data can give me in terms of like self-improvement and that is a journey that i've had to come on in terms of accepting that fact um because i certainly didn't really track and i definitely do like minimum viable tracking of my ads um But I also am acutely aware that if I want to get better and increase my return on my investment, then I am absolutely going to have to um, improve that tracking. And it's funny because for my other goals, like, you know, I have word count goals, which I don't normally set, but this year I have set word count goals. I'm automatically tracking daily word count on every different like type of project that I'm working on. And, you know, so yeah, like I think, I think it's a really hard one to accept for writers in particular who don't you know, we come to this because we want to play with words, not numbers, but any business person, if you want to make money or you want to, you know, increase your profits, you are going to have to look at what you're doing. And the best way to do that is through numbers. So I love that lesson. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Okay. So in your book, you also talk about the ultimate book marketing formula that will, if implemented over time, and that is, that is key, um, like take an author to full-time status. So can you explain like a bit about the method and the core actions um, and activities that an author needs to do uh, using the formula in order to get to the point where they could potentially go full-time? Sure. The first part is market research. So you need to know what your reader wants. And that's really about tropes and expectations. You can find that out. I get this question a lot. It's less about researching on the top 100 where you're doing any sort of numbers crunching. It's more just about reading. And then the cover and blurb we already talked about, but those are quite important. One thing overlooked with the cover sometimes is the series title and the title itself. You want those to signal what is going to be the experience within. So those can work in concert with the cover. And there with the cover and blurbs, the top 100 is very helpful because that's basically a reader approved list, let's say, of things that they respond to with actual money. So I don't really care that much about people's opinions. I want to look at the data. Amazon provides all that data to us 
for free in the top 100 charts. So you can get a clear look there. And then the other piece is, I think in the book, it might say at this point, four to six releases a year. I think over time, working with people who release less frequently, you can do fewer. I would say the absolute minimum to really have a realistic shot is probably two. There are outliers to that rule. It's very difficult marketing-wise to do one because there are forces outside your control with Amazon or Facebook ads or whatever traffic you're using. Sometimes there can be things that you wouldn't have anticipated and couldn't have basically accounted for. So I would say two at the minimum, three to four plus is where I'd feel most comfortable. And if you can write fast and do more, by all means, that's a great skill to have. It's not where everybody's core strength and skill set lies, being able to write a book a month or a book every six weeks. So if that's not you, don't worry about it. Or if you don't have time to do it right now because of other things that need your attention, then by all means, don't feel like that's the only path. But I would say three or four, that gives you a good every three, four months release schedule. So you're still staying top of mind. And if you can do more, great. Then the other piece is the newsletter. So the books are your number one asset. And then the newsletters are, or the newsletter itself, the newsletter list is your number two asset where you can build a relationship with people over time, but you own that. You don't own your Facebook likes. You don't own your Facebook group. You don't own your Instagram page. Those can be shut down or changed. And that's well within whatever company rights to do so. Their platform, their rules. But email has been around for a long time. It's going to be around for many years afterwards. Its demise is often overstated, but... You can't sign up for Facebook without having an email address where they send all the notifications to your email. So email is going to be around. And if you have that connection with readers, it's so invaluable and you can build that over time. So you want to make sure that you're building that by having a link to your email list to sign up in the front and back matter of your books. And then the other thing that's often overlooked, and you can do things like cross promotions with other authors if you want to build faster. I don't personally do those at this point. I have in the past. But the more overlooked piece than building, everybody is really concerned about how many people are on the list, is engagement, where people get all these names on the list. And then they don't send them any emails, or they only send them emails about launches and things like that unless you're launching every month, I think that that is going to be too infrequent a cadence. You really want to do either weekly, every other week or monthly. You can choose one of those and then use the skills that you've developed as an author to engage with your audience, which means tell stories, share opinions about things. That doesn't mean politics or religion, I would really steer clear of those. But as an author, for example, something that I have done in the past is share things that I've liked watching, TV shows, films, and that's a good thing that is relatively safe. And also it's something where you as the author have expertise. Books is an obvious one if you're reading a lot in your subgenre, and that can be a good way to connect with readers. So those elements, the market research covers blurbs releasing three to four plus times a year. And the newsletter are really the critical components of your career. And then the final piece is having three traffic sources. This goes back to the 80, 20 rule. What I mean by traffic, is ways to generate visibility and get people to your Amazon page. So there are an almost limitless number of ways to generate people coming to the page. The problem is that people have a fear of missing out or they've heard that someone has been really successful with a certain medium. So as we 
record this right now, TikTok is very popular. Book talk, I guess, is it's called. And what people start doing is gravitating outside their core set of strengths. And I'm not against people building skills in areas where they don't have them. That's obviously how we all learn. But that's not going to be what probably most authors are really great at with using that medium. And it can distract them from an area where they are actually building. It just may be slow because progress is not linear. It often seems like things aren't moving along. But if you're sending out that newsletter every month consistently or every week consistently, you're building that connection that can last for 20 years. And if all of a sudden you abandon that because you want to join the latest social media platform, then a lot of your momentum can stall out. So I would recommend focusing on three. And that's something like Facebook ads would be one. Amazon ads would be one. And then say promo sites, which are newsletters, email newsletter spots that you can purchase would be a third one or Facebook groups would be a third one. It doesn't have to absolutely be three, but the idea is that you really want to be at least pretty competent at three. And before you branch out and add in a bunch of other stuff on top of things, you want to have that solid base because it's much better to be good at even one thing than it is to be really relatively mediocre at 10 or 15. And you want more than one because again, things can change. Either the platform can change or you can get shut down through no fault of your own. And then your whole business crumbles if you're only reliant on one, but I would start building those and get a solid base before really adding a ton of stuff there. So that's the formula. Yeah, I I think that is very uh, sage advice about the three different because (laughs) I don't know about listeners, but I know I when I first came to this, I was like, I want to learn all of the things and, you know, just try to do everything. And, you know, eventually you realize like, actually, you know, I, I got my Amazon ads working. Uh, well for my nonfiction and um, got really good at them and now it you know it it generates a great income and I don't have to spend a lot of time tracking it but you know now I need to go and focus on another one but yeah I definitely think I was one of those that was like I'm gonna be on Instagram I'm gonna be on Twitter I'm gonna be on Facebook I'm gonna be you know I'm gonna do content marketing and and all of this and over the years I have sort of wheedled it out to the also not only the things that um like generate the best traffic, but also the things that I enjoy, because this is a, a, a business that we can, you know, we are creating our own life and our own business. And therefore like, there's no, I don't want to do the shit that I don't enjoy doing because otherwise what's the point in doing this job? Um, I'll just find another traffic source. Anyway, um, yeah. write, writers are often conflicted between wanting to write what they want to write and uh, needing to add market elements in to satisfy the audience. So I know you touched a bit about tropes and making sure you read, um, but can you talk a little bit about how an author um, should like go about that? What, what is it they're looking for um, in, in, in their genres in order to create a book that is marketable? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it goes back to what you were saying, where you have to incorporate elements into your business where you enjoy them, because really the number one predictor of whether you're going to adhere to something is whether you like doing it or not. If you like doing it or not, a lot of times you don't have to do all the scheduling and blocking out time for it. It's going to happen naturally. So that applies to learning how to use Facebook ads, but if you hate Facebook ads, then probably going to be very difficult to learn. Same thing with the books. If you absolutely hate a subgenre or hate certain ideas, then don't write them. There's enough possibility out there with what you can publish and write that you should be able to find something that is a good fit for you and also has an overlap with what readers want. So what readers want matters a lot more than what you want, but you also have to deliver the books in a consistent manner and publishing schedule. So if you can't write because you're not interested at all in what's going on, then you have to 
assess what you're doing and recalibrate. So with the tropes, again, I think that the best way to learn them is just to read. And then you can approach them in different ways. You can hit all of them and be very on the nose and that can be an effective approach. If you're not really a fan of them, then what you can start doing is omitting them and lampshading them, which is basically tipping your hat to the trope and acknowledging to the reader that you know what you're doing and you've twisted that and readers will appreciate that because it's something that they're familiar with, but presented in a different way. And oftentimes that's actually a more satisfying way to present them and kind of how you go from writing a relatively formulaic novel, which is there's nothing wrong with that at all, if that's what you want to do, to something that has a bit more resonance and stands out as unique. And maybe it's something that gets more word of mouth and helps build your author brand, but certainly there is a way to do that in a commercial fashion. But I think people overlook learning the mm -hmm. hopes and expectations of their audience. And it's something that you really can't avoid if you're going to be a full-time author. It's just part of the product you're delivering. So definitely read in your subgenre and the other thing is you can watch movies that's a shorter way to get that same content delivered so things like disney and marvel pixar movies they're pretty good at workshopping those and delivering things to a mass audience and some of them are very trope heavy and some of them do the more lampshading type of thing so those would be areas if you enjoy those type of films to check those out, but certainly a lot of options there. I think the Marvel movies are a good example of this where they take the superhero mold and then within those, they have a variety of different kind of subgenres where you have like a heist movie or something else, which is kind of an interesting way to make that fresh and what could be very stale over i don't know how many movies there are in the mcu at this point 20 plus but it's a good kind of lesson to see what other popular media is doing because you may not want to appeal to everybody but it's also not a bad thing to know what a lot of people Want. So you're making that decision consciously rather than accidentally where you're omitting something that people really want to see and that can help you. The other part is structure where some things, it, it's hard to draw the line exactly between structure and tropes, but something, for example, like the save the cat moment, mm. which the book is named after where the main character does something nice at the beginning of the novel or at the beginning of the movie. That's pretty common in most movies, mainstream movies and most novels. Something that you should be aware of. It's not necessarily something that you need to include, but things like that as well. So know the rules and then you can break them or adjust them accordingly. Yeah, and I am. Um, I do love breaking rules. <laughs> I love what you said about um, Disney because I also think Disney is, um, and I know there are some people listening who absolutely hate Disney, but uh, Disney is a master of story structure, and um, they also almost always represent the theme really well, uh, like in conjunction with the moral lesson. And I loved what you said about um, how some Disney films are like bucking, bucking the trope trend. And like one movie I can think of recently is Onward. I don't know if you've seen Onward, um, but Onward is like a, it's like a, it's like a family movie and the kid wants to, um, uh, they're, they're elves, I think. And they, they get this magic, 
staff I don't know like yeah I think it's called the staff anyway and they're trying to get their dad back for the day because their dad passed away and I don't want to ruin it and, and give you all the spoilers but the ending was not what I expected and but in such a good way and um so yeah there's another example of a movie like if anyone listening uh, wants to see one that definitely like hits tropes but also does it in a very fresh unexpected uh way so one of the questions I wanted to ask you was like, what are the most common mistakes or what's the biggest mistake you see writers making when it comes to their marketing? Yeah, I think probably the main mistake is overextending where they're just doing too much stuff. The Other than that, once you've refined a bit, the main thing I see is not enough testing. So if something, it's fine to start broad where you're like, I don't know what I like to do. I don't know what's going to work for my book. So I'm going to try these seven or eight different things. But once you have an idea of what you're doing and what your goals are and where kind of your interests and strengths lie, and you've narrowed that down, I think people either get stuck doing the same thing over and over again, or they don't test and this is particularly on the ad platforms but it also applies to different ways of releasing books maybe a different launch strategy maybe different promo ideas there's always a lot of questions does this work and people are very hesitant to just go out there and see what happens with your books it's very hard to predict necessarily whether a certain thing is going to work in your subgenre or with your specific books at this point i've run ads to a lot of different things. So it's something that I actually can give some idea of what's going to happen, but most of the advice you're going to get on a Facebook group while people are willing to share, it's going to be isolated to their own experience and their own subgenre. and things may be similar or things may be vastly different. A lot of the things in romance are very different than in other genres because the readers are so voracious. So it changes the economics of the marketing and the landscape when someone's reading a book a day mm. versus in thrillers, someone may be reading a book a week. And it's not that the same principles don't apply to both. It's that some of the tactics can differ there. But I think testing, if you're doing one thing in 2021, if you can... 2x, 5x, 10x, the amount and the speed of testing, especially if you're running ads, you're going to see amazing dividends from that. And it's such a simple idea, but we want to know what's going to happen going in, whether that's maybe with behavioral change, since it's early in the year, trying to change some stuff about our lives or whether this ad is going to work or whether this marketing campaign is going to work. The only way to really figure that out is test. And then based on that data, you want to be able to adjust. So I use an approach called iterative trial and error, where you're basically testing decent ideas. You don't want to test just complete nonsense. But once something works, you either refine it or if something's not working, you adjust it or you just strike it off the list and move on to the next thing next thing, next thing, until you find that pocket of marketing tactics and strategies that are working for your books. What's a, what, so what is a good mark, a testing budget? Uh, I think the one that you're comfortable with, if you're thinking about it when you're about to go to sleep, then that's not a good testing budget. That's also not a good launch budget if you're uncomfortable with that. So I don't really think about the money that I'm spending on my own books. And, you know, certainly when I talk with clients, it's what they're comfortable with and we're setting that based around their goals. So you don't want to be obsessed over it. You want to be concerned enough about it to check. Being totally ambivalent is not a good approach to the ads either, but you don't want to be worried about it. So, make the testing budget money that you can lose and get nothing for where you can treat it as tuition or a fact finding expedition. I think where people go wrong is that they want 
the testing process to yield a immediate results, which of course we would all like, but that's not usually the case. Um, and B, to be profitable in and of itself, but a lot of times it just takes time to zero in on the series that is working. You may have three or four candidates and three of them may not work. And then the fourth one may be actually the winner there. And then you have to come up with different ways of approaching the ads, what to target, what ad copy to use if you're on Facebook, what images. And that just takes time. Sometimes you hit it right out of the gate, but there have been times on say BookBub ads where tested, I think the last promotion that I did for someone, I tested 200 plus audiences and most of them weren't very good. And that's just part of, especially testing on BookBub, you have to test a lot of audiences, but that's gonna be par for the course where it's just a, refinement process. And if you're just starting out, I would say on Facebook, people start at $5. If you're not selling many books, you can do that because you can see it reflected in the sales. If you're selling books, I would probably start at $12, $15 a day on Facebook if it's something within your budget, because otherwise it's very difficult to actually track what's going on, especially if you're in Kindle Unlimited because you're getting page reads, you're getting sales, you're doing $5. It's like, is that one sale because of the ads or is it because someone bought it from my newsletter autoresponder? I'm not sure exactly. And that just makes it easier from a tracking perspective, but certainly you can start low and then scale up. You don't want to scale up before you have ads that work. That's only just going to magnify your losses if the ads aren't effective. Like, what do you class as working? Like, do you have a certain ROI level that you class as, um, or is it just if the ad is profitable or like, how do you class an ad like successful and ready to like go into full, like moving away from testing into full mode? <laughs> Great English yeah. there, Sasha. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, I think a lot of people have ROI targets. I don't really concern myself with ROI. I'm more concerned about the actual profitability number because making $20 on $20 of ad spend is going to be 100% ROI, which looks better than making $200 on $1,000 in ad spend. But that may be only 20% ROI, but certainly $200 is more than 20 and would be preferable to have. So as you scale up, efficiency tends to drop just ad costs rise, the conversion of the ads themselves, which is the sales and reads that they're generating, those tend to drop a bit because the ad platforms targeting wise, you have to reach further and further out from that core audience. And so I'm not super concerned with a specific metric. I'm fine probably running them at lower spends, lower, profitability rather than most people, because I'm thinking long-term, I'm thinking three years, five years down the line where it's like, how can I build this reader base for tomorrow? And a good way to do that is to sell books and get people into your series and reading ecosystem. And if they like the books, then they have an opportunity to sign up for your list. So I think that that is invaluable if you're contacting them regularly and engaging with your list. So even something like break even would be fine in certain scenarios, losing money would be fine. I would say that those are more advanced strategies where you have to have a very clear picture of what you're doing and where you want to go and how this is going to pay off. Cause it's very easy to quote unquote buy visibility on Amazon where it's like, Oh, my book is ranked number 1200 today. And I bought basically all these sales when the book was discounted and then your book drops to the floor and goes back to 50,000 or wherever it was before. And you're just not seeing really commensurate result to your ad spend and investment there. So I'd say gauge based on what you're comfortable with, but I think authors restrict their growth a little bit too much. It's worth 
noting that Amazon itself didn't turn a profit for a long time. And that's why it's the biggest company in the world. I think at this point, maybe Apple is um, one of those two, but basically they just built and built and built and built and reinvested. And that's not necessarily an option as a solo entrepreneur, which is what most artists are going to be. And you need to make money. You need to pay your mortgage. You need to pay the electric bill and things like that. So you can't just lose money constantly, but certainly there is a balance between growing and things that are going to pay off later in maybe 2022 or 2023 or five years down the line that may have a much higher actual long-term ROI that you can't necessarily track. So anytime I can add readers to the fold and get them reading books that they'll enjoy and potentially be a reader for the next five to 10 years, I'm definitely willing to lower the profitability if that's an option. Yeah, absolutely. Now I completely understand that this, I, I genuinely think if, if an author is listening and finding this painful to hear because they want results, like I get it. And I'm sure Nick gets it because, you know, I worked in a day job that I hated for a really long time. Um, but I stayed the course because I knew long-term I'd be able to quit. And, you know, it took me a few years, but I got there. And, um, that's literally because I, just didn't give up and you know you continue to get the books out there and some years you publish more and some years you don't but it's the same with that with the testing and and you know I've done many ad campaigns that have not been um profitable but are, are you know like in that immediate instance but then also picked up readers who have stuck with me the entire time and they're the ones that then email and say you know, where's the next book? And they are so precious and so worth, you know, like over the long haul, you know, what's the, I think it's a thousand true fans, isn't it? They say that you need to, uh, to, to build. Okay. So people always talk about Amazon algorithms, but for the, for the newer authors listening, can you tell them like, what does that really mean? And what are the key like factors and stats that they need to be aware of that, that, you know, that they need to be directing their, tra their traffic to, or they need to be focusing on in order to um, tickle the algorithms? Yeah, I think with the algorithms, I'll say this, uh, I run a lot of ads and run a lot of different launches. I would say the algorithms for most people, unless you're spending a lot of money are going to be vastly overrated and not what you should focus on. It takes a lot more money in most instances than people would anticipate to really get that algorithmic slingshot where you're not going to spend $50 or even $500 on a campaign in most instances and really get much in the way of Amazon pushing the book afterward. So that's one thing. The best way to get algorithmic visibility is to write in a hot genre. So that's called writing to trend where something is just really popular in Kindle Unlimited. And basically there's an undersupply of books versus reader demand and you have to hit those trends pretty fast. They change. And if you do hit them, then that can be great. If you're a really fast writer and that's something that you enjoy doing, it's a challenge that you enjoy taking on, then that can be something that you pursue. I would say building a, a backlist of super trendy books is not necessarily the best long-term strategy because those don't have a lot of evergreen appeal a lot of the time. So you're really concentrating your earnings very much upfront. And then that back end is much lower. An example is you can write something like paranormal Academy. So there are various flavors of that it can be reverse harem, stuff like that. But that is going to be less evergreen than an urban fantasy book or a paranormal wrote romance starring vampires or werewolves. And there may be ways to rebrand that trendy stuff to be more evergreen, but it's just something to keep in mind as you're devising a strategy. So the hot genre plays the biggest role if you're looking for basically algorithmic 
visibility without spending a ton of money. And then from there, the second most important thing is a new release. Amazon gives a lot of visibility to a new release. If you're doing your part as an author to get it visible. So if they see a popular new book, they'll help push that. And third is sales. So it's the Amazon algorithm is almost mythical at this point, but basically most of it from my experience, at least is fairly simple where Amazon's trying to push books to readers that they really want that are hot right now. So things that are getting borrowed a lot in Kindle Unlimited, that's what the hot genre is. And then readers love new books. People in general just love new things. So Amazon has set up their site to make sure that new Kindle books and new books are at the forefront of a lot of the recommendations. So those two play the biggest role. And then third is sales. If you sell a lot of books in a short period of time, Amazon is about making money. So they are profitable now. They're very profitable. They want to sell things that their customers want to buy so that their customers keep returning to Amazon. And that's the core three. And then some of the, I guess, more esoteric parts are that Amazon likes seeing an upward trending sales curve. So if you can have, say, 20 sales day one of your promotion, then 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, just for the ease of round numbers, it's never going to be that even. Then that kind of reflects organic buying activity. And it's okay if you have a dip there in a couple of days. It's very hard to make that uniform. But if you structure your promotional assets and your traffic sources so that that is trending upwards and then you cap the launch off or you cap your promotion off with a nice bang at the end there that can be helpful not going to beat having a ton of sales even if they all come over a couple days it's just the sales are the most important thing there with that's within your control marketing wise and then the last piece is having a relatively clean data sample what I mean by that is basically advertising your urban fantasy books to people who like urban fantasy. This is much more of a practical marketing consideration than anything to do with algorithms or fledgling artificial intelligence as Amazon algorithm grows. But basically you're trying to get your books in front of readers who want to buy them. So just from a conversion standpoint, you're more likely to sell an urban fantasy book to a big urban fantasy fan than someone who is a huge, sweet romance fan. So you just want to target people who are fans of the actual genre that you're writing. You can do that very easily with all the ad platforms. Your newsletter obviously is going to be people who are fans of that subgenre. So that's relatively simple to do but basically if amazon sees that 100 people who really like urban fantasy bought your book then they'll say okay we have these customers in our database who match similar attributes we're going to send out an email or put a website placement saying hey you should check out this person's book and again it's more of just something that you're going to be doing naturally it's not something that you're usually going to be all that concerned about if you're using promo sites that are relatively broad sometimes it can throw off the targeting mm-hmm. there but usually not a huge concern but i would say that you can structure your promos and things like that to basically harness whatever visibility you're going to get from the algorithms for free so it's kind of free money so it's something that when you can do it which is going to be most of the time why not? But I just wouldn't sit there and expect a ton of post promo or post launch afterglow if you're not spending a lot of money in most genres, not all, or if you're not writing in one of those genres that Amazon's really giving a lot of organic visibility to at this point. 
Absolutely. So I think we've probably covered um, the last couple of questions that I was going to ask um, or, or in a roundabout way anyway. So I wondered whether or not you had like one concluding tip or remark about, I guess, marketing in 2021 or um, maybe like your your best tip or something that um, if you wish, you know, if you could shake writers and say, I just wish you would do this. Um, what what would you what would you say to listeners? Uh, the first thing would be test more. Again, if you can test more than your fellow authors, then you're going to probably be further along in a year or three years, five years than they are just because you'll have tried more things and found what works for you. One thing that I really recommend, and I think it's probably going to be maybe the highest leverage thing you can do is I have this blurb writing exercise and anybody who does it says that it's helpful. I don't think anybody's ever done it for the full 30 days. So the idea is simple. You go to your top 100, pick out a blurb that resonates with you, and then you hand copy it. So you set a timer for seven and a half minutes, you hand copy it, and then you write your own blurb in the same style structure, and you set a timer for seven and a half minutes. So it's 15 minutes total. The idea is not to copy it wholesale. You're really looking for language choices. Why do they structure things this way? Why does this element work? And it seems too simple to be effective, but copying and emulation is the way we learn most things. So just taking the time to handwrite that out, you're going to see, okay, this is why this is structured in this way. This is why there's a line break here. This is why they use this word instead of another one. And that is such a high leverage activity because it's going to affect your blurbs. It's going to affect your ads because you have to write Facebook ad copy, BookBub taglines, stuff like that is going to affect the quality of your newsletters because you're going to be more engaging and use the language that resonates with your readership. And the bonus part of doing this is you can test those blurbs on Facebook to get empirical data on what's resonating best with your audience. So said testing budget, you can set aside $250, $500. If you're thinking about buying a course versus Doing that, I would say you're going to learn so much more by testing those blurbs over 30 days for the price of a course. And I have a course on ads, so that's coming from someone who has that. But what you're going to find is that if you do both of those things, you're going to be a way better blurb writer and way more confident in your blurbs over the next 30 days and also be way more confident with the Facebook ads as well and probably have multiple pieces of ad copy that you can use for your ads going forward as well as a refined blurb that hopefully converts better as well so very simple exercise but very effective I think that may just be my favorite thing that you said, because that is basically how I taught myself craft. Um, I have a habit, uh, very, I'm very obsessive over like underlining things in, in the stories that I'm reading and then I sticky tab them and then I collect all the sentences at the end and I um, like copy and paste them and I study them and I break them down and I look at like, you know, you know, how are they using adjectives? What's the rhythm that they're using? How have they used repetition? Have they used a juxtaposition? All of this stuff. And that is literally how I taught myself craft. And I don't think I've ever done that for a blurb. So guess what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point with the craft. You can do the same exact thing with books. If you want to learn how to start a thriller novel, pick up Jack Reacher and you can handwrite out the intro and break it down. So it applies to the craft part as well. So that's a great point. Absolutely. Okay. So this is always my favorite question, but this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So can you tell us about a time you unleashed your inner rebel? I I don't know if I have a great answer (laughs) for that. I would say that the way I approach things is probably relatively contrarian, not by active choice. It just seems to be from what I read and what I 
research and stuff like that, like I'm always looking for what's true rather than what's necessarily convenient or what is going to be the easiest path. So I think that that is just something that's going to permeate what I do from a day to day basis. Not really exciting from a rebellious standpoint, I guess it could be considered rebellious, but basically just trying to find what is accurate and what actually works and that's i guess my approach day to day so i think that's definitely rebellious and i'll tell you why because i think the very act of rebelling um means that you are not choosing the easy path and you know like no rebel ever went down their journey and said oh you know this is easy i i you know i i created a you know or whether you're breaking rules, whether you're um, disrupting, whether you're uh, doing something cheeky or naughty, or you are literally uh, just going your own way, like the the very act of, you know, rebelling against conformity is hard and difficult. So yeah, I definitely think that's um, a rebellion and and finding and, and valuing what's true rather than, you know, what everybody's telling you is true is, is definitely a rebellion. Okay, so tell listeners where they can find out more about you, um, your books, courses, all of that good stuff. So where I'd probably start if you want a comprehensive resource to marketing and basically an overview of most of what I do is check out the Ultimate Guide to Book Marketing. And that's available on Amazon as well as other retailers. And you can also check out my site there are free resources and I do a sometimes weekly newsletter. Sometimes it's more frequent, sometimes it's less. And you can check that out at nicholaseric.com. So that's N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S and then Eric with a K. And that should pop up. Awesome. And I will link to that in uh, the show notes as well. So thank you very much for your time today. Yes. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking. And of course, thank you to the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Thank you very much also to everybody listening. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Nicholas Eric, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I am going to be joined by Emma Byrne. Emma is a robot scientist with a fascination with swearing. She wrote the book, Why Swearing is Good for You. So it is a properly rebellious, super sweary episode. And yeah, it is just a bit of a fun episode, really. Um, Less about writing, although we do cover um, like swearing for characters, differences between uh, male swearing and female swearing. So all, some things in there that you can uh, take into your writing and particular into characterization. Um, but it is just fascinating. And uh, yeah, so join me next week to uh, have a cheeky rebellion and learn why swearing is good for you. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.